1: Welcome to New Books in Critical Theory. It's a podcast that's part of the New Books Network. On this episode, I'm delighted to be joined by Martin Schuster, who's gonna be talking about how to measure a world. Um, So welcome back to
0: the podcast. Uh, Thanks so much, Dave, it's great to be back.
1: Um, This book, I guess, is a slight kind of departure from your last book, which was uh, a kind of philosophy of television book, but it harks back to the first time we, we spoke, Um, which was a book that was uh, about kind of critical theory, Adorno. Um, And I can see how this book, you know, sort of fits in uh, with that broader sort of intellectual project. And I'm really interested to begin with the title. Um, And I was kind of like intrigued how to measure a world. It's a fascinating title in itself. But I was also intrigued as to where the kind of project of measuring a world and how to measure a world came from
0: yeah sure so i think you're you're right to sort of um see it growing out of some of my work in critical theory i think there's a lot of critical theory in the book in a way um and it could also be referred to what i think people nowadays call critical phenomenology so it's very much uh, i think a book of phenomenology um and connected to critical theory in certain ways but also um methodologically does something different than some of those books. And I'm sure we'll talk a little more about that. But um, the title really grew out of that. So so much of phenomenology, um, you know, for for listeners that, that might not be aware, it's essentially, um, it's a philosophical movement that, that roughly starts with a with a guy named Husserl. And, um, and the basic move is, is it's a descriptive study of structural features of experience, and so maybe another way to put all of that in, in less technical jargon, is it really tries to look at how how things are given to us in the world, um, and so it starts with this basic idea that you know human consciousness is is a unique phenomenon, and human consciousness is um, sort of defined by a feature, which is that it's always intentional in Husserl's words, meaning that it is always consciousness of something, and then um, the idea is to study whether different kinds of states can reveal certain things and so imagine like consciousness of a work of art for example is different than consciousness of my body as i'm you know uh, performing certain tasks or playing a sport which is different from consciousness of when i'm thinking which is different from consciousness of when i'm reading and so forth and so forth um, and you can see from those sort of examples that it's linked intimately to me but also to the world so it, it, phenomenology attempts to think about how it is that the world is revealed to human beings in distinction um, from from other kinds of creatures uh, and so that's really where where the title came from in a lot of ways it's very much inspired by this method but um, also with a particular twist so it has a historical dimension um, but it's really the subtitle is a philosophy of judaism and so it attempts to give a sort of philosophical phenomenological um, reading or approach to thinking about uh, Judaism in, in these sort of terms as oriented around thinking about the world.
1: And there's a, uh, this sounds sort of slightly flippant, but you know, there's a quite kind of stellar cast of, of um, you know, sort of key Jewish thinkers. Um, and, and it really does have a, you know, a very broad historical range. And, and one of the things that the book does is begins with Emmanuel uh, Levinas um, and he he sort of appears repeatedly throughout the book and is a a kind of key sort of touchstone or you know sort of anchor point uh, for the the book's um, questions about how to measure a world and and I'm very interested into you know sort of why he was important Um, was it you know were you kind of working on his thought generally and and that kind of kicked off some of the ideas in the book Or, or you know is he a key thinker that you think um you know we need to engage with if we're going to understand sort of how
0: phenomenology might be important what's his role in the text right um so a little bit of both actually so in a way i mean you know biographically levinas and and all of these other post world war ii thinkers sort of broadly conceived were just always of interest to me so as you mentioned my first book was on tator w adorno um and so, and, and I've published also on Hannah Arendt, on Jean Amery. So all of these uh, figures in this post uh, World War II sort of period, um, and they all are working around similar problems, which, which is to say, they're thinking about how it is that um, something like the Nazi genocide was uh, able to happen, um, which might not be, you know, a, a question that um has the same sort of resonance for us now but for i think you know people in the european context they had a particular resonance that i think what's striking about all of them and levinas especially is they realize very early on that it's not just a problem let's say about nazi germany or it's not just a problem about this particular period but rather it stretches far beyond um this sort of historical period both forwards meaning that there are um legacies and institutions and structures and features of the Nazi genocide that continue into even the present moment, I would argue. Um, but also that there are features that precede the Nazi genocide, um, that have to be taken into account. And so that's sort of the background for me biographically. Um, but then Levinas himself, I think, uh, Phenomenologically, he's a very interesting figure in this tradition because he's sort of at the tail end of it. So, if phenomenology begins with Husserl, um, then in a way, Levinas is the is the tail end of it because he's already a sort of critic of um, of the tradition. And what I mean by that is he's someone who's radicalizing that method. So, remember when I said that. Um, phenomenology is oriented around sort of intentionality or consciousness of something. Then, by the tail end of the tradition, you have figures like Heidegger, for example, who's also a well known phenomenologist, and Levinas, who are both thinking about intentionality in ways that I think Husserl perhaps would be very um, uncomfortable with, meaning that they're thinking about consciousness of objects that do not ever appear meaning heidegger for example is thinking about death and it seems like death has a profound effect on the sort of world we have how we exist in it um and yet it's 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 something that never appears right if we're dead then then there's no there's no consciousness of anything um and levinas is is sort of um very uncomfortable with both Heidegger's biographical story. So Heidegger was, uh, you know, a member of the Nazi Party, and, um, and and Levinas is very much turned off, obviously, by the political commitments, but then also by uh, his sort of focus on death and and all of these sort of things, which um, he sees as intimately connected um, to his sort of uh, adoption of Nazism. And Levinas is very much focused on things like the human encounter. So uh, in the way that I am able to have a relationship with an other, uh, that other also, Levinas wants to argue, never appears in the sense that uh, you cannot reduce the other person merely to what Levinas will call their plastic features, in other words, something like their particular physical characteristics. Um, And obviously there's a lot more to say there, but the basic orientation I think is already very much pushing against the bounds of phenomenology even as he's working with it there and so all of these things together um and then on on top of all that just to add very quickly a, a third thing i mean levinas is also explicitly um he makes these remarks that like judaism is an anachronism he calls it so it, he, he gives an essentialist definition of judaism which you know is already very controversial by this period um but it's a very odd one. And and that leads him to make these sort of odd remarks that I talk about in the book sometimes where he says like, look, actually being Jewish is a modality of being human. And like, you know, if we, um you know, if we end up on Mars, and we find Martians, then actually a few of them will be Jewish also, because it's just a fundamental feature of being in the world. um And so it's these odd sort of claims that tie the project of Judaism to this sort of phenomenological method, um, that fascinated me. And I wanted to to explore that. And then as I started working on this, I realized that something like this sort of approach or conception of Judaism can be diagnosed in a variety of figures and that you could sort of construct a tradition around this. And so that's why the book moves you know, backwards to figures like Maimonides, who's Considered very much, you know, quote traditional Jewish thinker, and then also forwards to figures like Adorno and Levinas and and, and others.
1: And and I guess it kind of interrogates this uh, tradition or or this project through two sort of broad clusters, really. And and you say something right at the very end of the book uh, about how. You know, the kind of the first um, couple of chapters, the first half is about this question of like what it means to be in a world and how we should be kind of like orientated uh, towards it. And, and And there's, you know, wonder and outrage uh, of the, the things you, you pick out in that conclusion. And then there's this um, kind of other oh, half of the book, which is, well, you know, how do we actually construct worlds, you know, linguistically through um, through experience and, and this kind of stuff, and, and I think we'll do sort of both of them in, in, in turn. And to not sort of box you in too much, because uh, because it, it'd be good to spend a, a bit of time on this. But um, my Modernies you, you've mentioned, and, and this book he wrote, or this um, text, the guide for the perplexed, that I suppose is is one way of, of sort of thinking about being in the world which is about wondering and you know being kind of awed by it and i I was fascinated by that both in terms of um what that tells us about how to be in the world but also for what would come later in, in terms of um a very different approach that we see in adorna
0: yeah absolutely and in a way um i think if i can speak at a very eagle's eye sort of view like a high altitude view they're both oriented by What we might call sort of negativity and what i mean by that is it's a there's a sort of negative relation to the world as it is and so for maimonides he's someone who looks at the world um you know again as it is so whatever we're considering at the present moment um or during his time period whatever the case might be but all the features objects people and so forth of the world maimonides looking around and he's saying look um you know again phenomenologically i have this experience that um there's something more than this potentially i just have some intuition um and you know he calls that god and so forth um but it's really it starts in this phenomenological register where there's something existentially that maimonides thinks that he registers and i try to to unpack that um and that's sort of where this this motif of wonder comes in is it our wonder about the features of the world pushes us beyond the world. In other words, we, we have a sort of negative relation to it. And I don't mean that um, I don't mean that like sort of like it's it's negative, like you know we're depressed or something. It's negative in that it's negating the sort of features of the world as we encounter them. There's something more beyond that. And Adorno, in a way, is doing something very similar again at a very high altitude view, um, but he's negating the world. Because of a sort of moral outrage did he say look there has to be um, more than this because it would be a sort of moral outrage if this was all that there was um, and so they have I think formally analogous attitudes that both again take a negative relation to the world but for different um, four different uh, I, I, I'm almost loath to say reasons because they operate um, not purely cognitively. Um, but, but almost in this sort of um, bodily dimension in a way, um, you, you sort of feel like there has to be more either because you, you encounter the world in wonder or you encounter it in outrage. And um, once those two pieces were in place, then I, then I realized that these are sort of, you know, limit cases in a way. They're just two fundamental ways of being in the world that it seemed to me cut across time and space. And I found that very fascinating. And then it was just a matter, like you said, of sort of developing some of these other aspects of what it means to have a world, um, meaning that, you know, it's defined by language and it has a history and so forth and so forth.
1: I mean, one of things you do, I, I should say about the book is, you know, this is not just a sort of description of, here is my modernese, here, here is, you know, the guide for the perplexed, but, but you sort of, um, put the work into dialogue uh, through, uh, I guess, a kind of phenomenological reading uh, of the work. Um, And you're interested in Islamic thoughts, uh, you know, kind of classical Greek scholarship. Uh, We've already mentioned Heidegger. And and I'm sort of keen to know how, um, I guess, you sort of take a text and put it into dialogue with um, kind of other forms of thought that go beyond... Um, I guess the kind of Jewish tradition, and, and in some ways, a sort of we've already alluded to this, um, are kind of you know, radically opposed to it in particular ways.
0: Yeah, I think it's a it's a great question. So, um, this was a feature that was very important to me, um, and for two sort of reasons. I mean, one was a was a deep sort of intellectual commitment that I talk about in a sense, but another was just a very pragmatic um, sort of feature, which is this grew out of actually a um a large grant that I was a uh PI on um around religious understanding and so it very much started as an inquiry into interreligious dialogue I guess is what people would call it um and so it was explicitly a way to um frame interreligious encounter um and so that was something that that just that's sort of how it it grew out conceptually and 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 uh, you know, j- j- just how the work began in a way. But, um, once I began sort of working on all of this and all of these figures, I realized that, Hey, I mean, to do them justice, you, you have to be able to engage all of these different sources. And so, I mean, it, you know, the, the sort of Muslim milieu to Maimonides is sort of central, just as the German sort of milieu is central to Adorno. And, you know, the French context is central to Levinas. And then uh, all of them in different ways, I think, are engaging Judaic thought at different points. And so there are uh, medieval motifs that appear here. And it was important to me just as a scholar to be able to bring these to the fore and to make sure that I can engage with Uh, these different sources responsibly and so that that became actually very important to me um and it's it's one of the features i mean just just biographically again that I'm, i'm sort of most proud of the book is that it's able to work across all of these sort of languages and sources i think in responsible ways um and it, it, again, it's, it's, it's a feature of the book that I very much sort of wanted to be there so that um, it could be of interest to people that are working in those traditions, um, whether linguistic, religious, historical, whatever the case might be, and that they could find entry points into a work that they might not otherwise encounter necessarily, um, because it is in this way sort of eclectic and really doing something different from uh, what any one of those traditions does by itself.
1: Yeah, I see a really nice example of that uh, is, is, in, is in the third chapter where you put Adorno in, into dialogue with two thinkers that obviously he's, you know, very closely sort of uh, associated with, but through the question of, of, of history. Um, so, you know, you take Hegel and, and, and Marx and the idea of a kind of a universal history um, and, you know, you, you sort of see how Adorno offers, you know, kind of critical or alternatives to that. And, and I suppose to kind of illustrate that dialogue, there's there's maybe a two part question here. The first thing is, what is this idea of universal history? Um, and then the second thing is, you know, the, the kind of um, Adornian, is that a word? <laughs> or Adorno's uh, reading of that.
0: Yeah so i mean look there's there's a feature that emerges i think um and it's very much a sort of eurocentric approach that um that emerges I, I think roughly in the in the early modern period it has to do with the the sort of encounter with the the quote new world right the americas um and and we know that, that there's a you know a strong genocidal element there and, and a, a deep problematic eurocentrism but um there's a collection of sort of various philosophical approaches that emerges there to um, thinking about the sort of passage of history. And I think um, some of the dominant positions um, are something like the following, which is, um, you know, Europe is the the sort of the tail end of proper history. And um, it is the completion of a certain kind of project that, let's say, begins perhaps with the ancient Greeks and culminates in that Europe. And again, there's a lot of really horrible Eurocentric assumptions about the deficiency of Indigenous cultures across the world, um, and also their lack of historicity, their lack of development, and and so forth. Um, And, you know, it's multiple book projects to really tease out the full scope of that so uh, you know my chapter is by no means conclusive but i think what's interesting about adorno and the other figure that's involved here is uh, is an associate of adorno's um, of the frankfurt school uh, walter benjamin and i think what the two of them are responding to is there are versions of this that are triumphalist in the sense that they see a progressive um, passage to history, meaning that, you know, things are getting progressively better and then they culminate in Europe. But then there are people who just reverse this direction. Um, and they say, look, uh, it, there's a regressive history. And so things are getting worse. And you can think of, you know, Rousseau is a very classic example of the latter. you know, um, things were going great in the state of nature. And then, you know, we established government and then everybody's in chains all of a sudden. And, um, and I think what's interesting about Adorno and Benjamin is they find both of these problematic. They sort of highlight that they share a premise, and it is something that they attribute even to someone like Marx, who is considered you know, a very radical thinker, and in many ways, of course, is extremely radical and someone we can still learn from an immense amount. But they diagnose a certain historical approach, and now I have to sort of add a caveat here, I, I'm not sure how true this actually is of the historical marks, especially what we know now about the things that he's working on later in life and his approach to um, to sort of non-European cultures and stuff. Uh, there's been work by people like Kevin Anderson um, in, a, in a book called Marks at the Margins, where this is really sketched. But um, be that as it may, uh, the basic idea is that We want to reject both of these conceptions of history, whether progressive or regressive, because they both assume that history is homogenous in a certain way, meaning that it can be plotted in this way. And I think what Benjamin uh, introduces to Adorno, and what Adorno takes up in a certain way, is a rejection of this almost on ethical grounds, meaning that um, when you homogenize history in this way. Then, in a way, actually you you undermine the basic feature of history, which is that it involves humans, and humans are unique and unpredictable, and so there is always they think an element of deep contingency to anything, and that is true as much of the future as it is of the past, meaning how even history is constructed um, is by no means sort of uh something that happens. You know by accident or something that happens without further interference and the historical record itself um oftentimes uh forget certain things that we can try to recover um you can tell stories of history that are um non-contiguous in this way that um see history as not moving in linear terms whether progressively or regressively and and so forth and it's it seems very obvious to us now because we have a range of sort of scholars operating in this mode but i think at the time that they were writing this was a a relatively radical proposal um, in this sort of european frame and and one that i think is very important and that history since then has only borne out in the kinds of histories that we've done and started to do and and so forth. But just very, I I know, this is a very long answer. But just to add very quickly to that, what underwrites all of that, I think, for Benjamin is a is a manifestly sort of almost quasi religious position about um, both the possibility of something like messianic redemption at any moment, just as as a logical possibility, and also the sort of priority, and uniqueness of every human life that cannot be just covered over by history in this sort of progressive or regressive way and so there again you have these sort of religious undercurrents that benjamin pulls from jewish tradition but sort of reframes and repurposes um, in a different context towards a different end
1: i mean what you said actually struck struck me in terms of you know, we, we still live actually with ideas of uh, universal history, particularly in, in the progressive sense, but, you know, often linked really closely to sort of deeply regressive uh, social political projects. And that I'm going to use as a bit of a sort of segue <laughs> crudely into the, the way the book finishes. And and one of the things that um, we see um, with the first kind of encounter with Adorno in the book is is this idea about, um, kind of suffering um, but you, you raise I guess things that you know are about the kind of ethical in- orientation towards um, the world and, and you come back to this uh, I guess you know more formally when you're thinking about kind of words discourse language in how worlds are constructed um, and I'm interested in I guess the kind of the place of of ethics not just in terms of, of how we construct worlds but but also the place of ethics uh, within the book itself.
0: Yeah, no, that's a great question, and and I think you're you're absolutely right to diagnose that these sort of positions are still very much alive. Um, and I think you can register them, you know, in the sort of shock that people, you know, that people sort of, I mean, mostly it, it seems like white people, at least in the U.S., expressed, you know, at the election of Trump, like how could this happen, you know? And and I think now, you know, you're experiencing something similar in Britain with with the sort of uh, the involvement of the russian oligarchs and various uh, features of of british society and it's sort of constant at every level that um that i think there are these sort of accounts where things are seen as progressive and so these um striking emergencies are seen as somehow anomalous. And I think people like Adorno and Benjamin look at it, and they they very much sympathize with the perspective of, of marginalized peoples who say look like actually, this has been a constant. Um, and that doesn't mean that history is then regressive, because again, that's just um, another sort of uh, affirm affirmation of the status quo which is itself also problematic and so again the idea is really to deny both perspectives and i think you're right to highlight that at bottom there's a sort of ethical orientation for all of these figures that's linked deeply to what judaism means for them so when levinas sort of suggests that judaism is an anachronism meaning that it pushes back against the current moment somehow um then that's really an ethical position. I mean, it claims that whatever is going presently is either morally wrong or it is, you know, something that um, leads us to to wonder about other possibilities and so forth. What to explore more, which is a sort of ethical stance. Um, so yeah, this is a fundamentally ethical position, and I think it's also operating under a distinct um, understanding of ethics that very much is inspired by Levinas. So. I mentioned earlier that he was a sort of critic of phenomenology and in a way he's also a critic of the entire project of western philosophy and so he's very famous for saying like look ethics is first philosophy and so for um the sort of dominant questions that are oftentimes understood by philosophers to to have the most priority are questions of metaphysics or ontology sort of what things are and um And I think Levinas comes along, and here, this is something, again, he shares with Heidegger to a certain extent. Um, And he says, look, these questions um, are actually not uh, the ones that have the most priority. And Heidegger will give a particular answer for why he thinks that's the case, and Levinas gives a different answer. But... Essentially, what Levinas wants to say is before you can begin asking any of these sort of questions about what something is, is you have to understand how a world comes about in the first place. So how is it that you have something rather than nothing? And notice that for humans, um, you know, obviously part of the answer is is genetic in the sense that we can point to the Big Bang and we can say, look, like, you know, obviously something had to happen and then things get going. But that doesn't get us a human world, which has so much more than just the sort of physical features, um, but rather has all of these intersubjective, normative, um, fundamentally human elements that can only be explained by the presence of intersubjectivity, other human beings, or again, what Levinas calls ethics, meaning relationships with other people. Um, And so, yeah, that he thinks is the most fundamental basis of having a world in this human sense, um, that has to be considered if we're interested in doing philosophy, in other words, not just doing natural science where we're trying to understand how physically things came about, but if we're interested in doing philosophy and understanding how a human world, that a world, in other words, that makes room for consciousness, um, and that first person perspective, how that came about, then ethics has to be first philosophy, according to Levinas.
1: we we, we should probably um, start to wrap up with, with Stanley Cavill partially because um, his work, you know, is kind of crucial to that ethical um, discussion that, that forms the, the end of the book. But also I I sort of feel like we've, we've kind of gone through the the key names um, of of each chapter and and it'd be, you know, slightly kind of unfair to to sort of leave him out given he has such a big role in that final chapter. So, I think one one route in might be actually if you could say a bit about kind of um, why he matters to the book. And and again, thinking about, you know, from where are we sort of 11th, 12th century uh, Jewish philosophy to something much more kind of contemporary.
0: Yeah. So again, I think um, the basic sort of move here is to see them as all bound up with um, with. Within one particular tradition that's oriented around seeing Judaism as an anachronism. In other words, um, uh, Judaism as something that continually pushes against the world as it stands. And um, as I say that, to see Judaism also as a modality of being human, meaning that this is a capacity that all humans have in virtue of being human. And so, um, you know, we can reconstruct it around Jewish sources, but as you sort of highlighted, um, a lot of these figures are in dialogue with with other traditions, and so potentially it could be reconstructed from other traditions as well. And so the idea is to use the religious archive um, in this sort of way. And I think you know Cavell is by no means a religious thinker in in the sort of plain sense, but he's someone who's concerned with these sort of elements and features. And I think um, his thought takes on a particular cast if you can put him in a genealogy, let's say, that moves from Maimonides down to um, to him, to Cavell. And I think where I find him sort of most productive and interesting um, is he's someone who is also thinking about things in ways very similar to uh, Levinas, um, in that he's prioritizing this unique understanding of ethics, he's prioritizing intersubjectivity, our existence with others, but he's also highlighting a perpetual standing feature of that, which is that we can deny uh, that we can deny that we have connections to others. Um, It can fail to register for us, we can fail to acknowledge uh, people around us and that the world is constructed through those intersubjective relations. And the the name he sort of gives to that is is skepticism, broadly conceived. And, um, again, this is another um, place where there's an established academic debate about skepticism. And then Cavell gives it a sort of almost axial twist, where this established academic debate is um, linked to a fundamentally human existential problem that affects us as humans, as um, people who are capable of having these sort of relationships to others, but also by the same token are capable of denying them, ignoring them, avoiding them, failing to acknowledge them, and and so forth. And it's important to understand that as also a perpetual standing um, feature of the world. And so that's sort of how, how Cavell fits into the to, to the overall, um, overall project is it was important to, to understand why something like this tradition um, hasn't gained a lot of ground in what we might call normative Judaism and, um, and how even Cavell himself um, lacks a certain sort of standing, I think, in philosophical circles. I mean, he's a well-respected figure, but, um, but in sort of traditional uh, philosophical circles is oftentimes uh, rarely taken seriously and hasn't had the sort of uptake that, that other figures have had from the 20th century.
1: I mean, it, it strikes me we've we've hit upon sort of three or four topics of discussion that easily could be books in themselves. You know, you sort of mentioned that in, in terms of history, and you know, a possible kind of reassessment of, of Cavell's work is is, is there? Um, obviously, you know, you've already um, done a lot of work on on Adorno, and and I'm sort of intrigued to know where how to measure a world kind of fits in terms of um, a future set of projects um or you know is there a sense of and again you mentioned a, a sort of project grant that had helped um some of the writing of the book is there a sense of um this area of your thought kind of coming to a conclusion um or is is there more to be done um uh, kind of coming out of some of the ideas in this book
0: yeah it's a great question so um in a way i think there's there's two more things that i'm working on that i view as intimately connected to this but that um may not appear so intimately connected at first. And so I have two book projects that I'm, I'm sort of uh, wrapping up now and trying to complete in different ways. Um, one is a is a book called genocide in the state. And the subtitle of that book is an alternative history of modern political philosophy. And the idea for the book is really to um, tell a story or tell the history of modern political philosophy from Hobbes to Hegel, um, not using uh, something like, let's say, um, rights or freedom or sovereignty, so these classic sort of concepts, but rather using the concepts of genocide and the state and the relation between the two. Um, So putting that into focus and seeing how um, the argument of the book is essentially that you can show that, The genocidal impulse is a feature of the state um, concept as it's developed in Western philosophy from the very beginning from Hobbes. And there's a much longer historical story here, I think, about how many of the modern philosophical concepts originate from geometry. And so there's always a drive for homogeneity that exists in political philosophy just because these concepts are ported from geometry and 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 from a different discipline um that's the sort of historical story but that project is very also very much a phenomenology project because it's thinking about the phenomenology of the state and so here the the method of sort of critical phenomenology is something that's very much animating um, my work also and then the other book project is a very short book um routledge has these um has, these, has a series called The Basics, where it's, it's sort of like an introduction to something. that I'm, I'm doing um, a book called Critical Theory, The Basics, that's a sort of introduction to the Frankfurt School, but that's attempting to tell the story of the Frankfurt School um, in a slightly different way than I think has been done frequently. Um, so a lot of times, you know, people tell the story historically, or they will tell the story about the figures that were involved with the Frankfurt School. And I think you can actually tell a sort of story about the Frankfurt School conceptually, meaning that the the entire impulse for the school originates from the desire to sort of alleviate, understand, and then alleviate human suffering. And I think you can see that impulse also in Marx already. And so I want to construct a history that proceeds conceptually in this way that starts from something like, um, you know, what does it mean to acknowledge and respond to suffering in the world? What sort of concepts does that then require? So it requires certain notions of critique. Um, And then you have to think about agency and sort of how agency is formed and how institutions work and so forth. Um, And so to tell that sort of history, but to also do it in a way that um, highlights the extent to which Uh, Benjamin, for example, again, was very important to the school, and by means of Benjamin, all of these traditionally religious motifs that in a way Benjamin almost, um, that Adorno and Horkheimer and others inherit from Benjamin. So they're like the Jewish mystical tradition by means of Benjamin's engagement with uh, the sort of scholar of Kabbalah, Gershom Sholem, is smuggled in, in a way. Um, And so again, I think it's obvious how that in a way connects to to the project here. Um, but um, it's hard to say that they're like direct sequels, um, but they're very much uh, circulating around similar themes methodologically and and I think content-wise.